Welcome to this message from Shofar Christian Church. May you experience God's grace as you listen to His Word being preached. I want to just share with you from Luke chapter 22. I recently read a quote from one of my favorite authors, Tim Keller, and he said the vast majority of people who don't believe in Christianity have radically inaccurate ideas about what Christianity is. And I think it's true, but I even want to add to that. Even a good many people who do believe in Christianity <laughs> has some inaccurate ideas about what Christianity is. Um, let me put it differently. Many people who have rejected Christianity have actually rejected their misconception about Christianity. And some people who have accepted Christianity have actually accepted their misconception about Christianity. Isn't that true? And, and that's why it's so often good to go back to the basics of what Christianity really is, what the, the essence of Christianity is. You know, one of the, um, as, as Keller says, one of the great questions of history is why did the early Christians choose the cross as the main symbol for their faith, for their religion? And let me just explain why that's such a question and, and a bit of a, a, a bit of a um, you know issue and a, even a riddle. You know, why did the early Christians choose the cross as their main symbol? If you think about the founders of world religions, all of them died old and successful. Okay, Moses died at 120 old and full of years, after delivering, being used by God to deliver the, the children of Israel out of Egypt, out of slavery, out of oppression, and taking them to the border of the promised land. Buddha died at about 80 after achieving enlightenment and amassing a great following. Muhammad died in his 60s after um, you know, amassing great wealth, a lot of followers, a lot of wives too, and conquering all his enemies and uniting the whole of Arabia under one religion and one rule. And in stark contrast to that, to that, Jesus died at the age of 33, hanging naked on a cross, forsaken even by his closest followers. Seemingly a failure. So why in the world would the early Christians choose the symbol that reminded them of this death, this seeming defeat. Why would they choose that as the symbol of, of, the, of, of the Christian faith? Isn't that a bit, of, a bit strange? Well, the only explanation um, is, we actually in this passage that we're going to read now in, in, in Luke 22, Jesus actually gives an explanation um, of that. And... Um, the only explanation is that Jesus gave this explanation of the cross. After it, and after the resurrection, the disciples remembered it, the apostles remembered it, and they understood it, and they lived according to it. So let's just, let's just look at that uh, for a moment. I'm just going to read you um, that text, if I can just open my bottle and wet my whistle. There we go. 
So Luke 22, I'm reading from the NIV, from verse 14. It says, When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired uh, to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, um, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to the man who betrays him. They began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. Also a dispute arose among them as to which of them was considered the greatest. Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you a kingdom, just as my Father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, but I've prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers." But he replied, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. And Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. So in just before I start sharing, I just want you to notice something interesting from this passage. Um, this is a very vulnerable moment for Jesus. Jesus is talking about his death. He's talking about the fact that he's going to suffer, that he's going to shed his blood, that his body's going to be broken, that he's going to die. And um, he's talking about the fact that one of his very closest disciples is going to betray, who's sitting with him at the table, is going to betray him. Very vulnerable moment for Jesus. And yet the disciples start arguing about who's the greatest. And I can just imagine how this conversation must have gone. You know, they'd start asking, you know, which of us would betray him? Oh, not me. No, no I'm the greatest of us. You know, I'm the most committed to Jesus. I, I would never do something like that. You know? And all of a sudden, they start arguing about who's the greatest. Can you believe it? And I mean, this just shows us how authentic and credible this passage is. I mean, some people say, no, you know, um, the church invented all these stories written down in the Gospels about Jesus later on, you know. And, and Jesus was just a good teacher, but the church later invented this religion of Christianity and invented the stories about him, you know, rising from the dead and all that kind of stuff. You can't say that of this passage. If the apostles, because it was the apostles who wrote this, who wrote these Gospels, 
If they invented the stories and this religion, surely they would have invented stories that make them look a bit less like idiots. Surely they would have invented stories that make them look a bit better as the founders, you know, and the leaders of this new religion. I mean, it's, it's actually quite ridiculous to think, in the light of this brutal honesty, that, that it was invented. The, the only credible explanation for why these stories are there is because it really happened. So, so what, what I'm talking about today is not just nice stories. This is history. This really happened. This is truth. And we can trust it. Okay, so in this passage, scholars call this the, the criteria of embarrassment. You know, if, if you're going to invent stories, you're not going to invent embarrassing stories about yourself. Okay, so even, even people who don't believe in Christianity, even skeptical scholars will acknowledge that this seems historically credible. You know, you, you could, you, it would be rash to say that this is not historical and true. But in this, this passage, we, we see Jesus giving an ex- explanation for the cross and why the cross became so central and so powerful um, in Christianity. Um, and he gives four explanations. The, the explanation of a historic pattern, the explanation of a pr- prophetic prediction, the explanation of a contrast community, and the explanation of a changed individual. So I'm going to explain those as I, as I go along. Firstly, the, the explanation of a historic pattern. The occasion of Jesus' ex- Explanation is the Passover, as we see in, in verse 15 of this passage, the annual commemoration of Israel's exodus from Egypt. And, and what happened was Israel um, ended up going to Egypt. If you remember, um, God sent Joseph ahead of them. They sold. I love the way Joseph said it. He said, you sold me into slavery, but God sent me to Egypt. You sold me to Egypt, but God sent me at the very same time. And eventually the rest of Jacob's family also end up in Egypt. But eventually, after uh, a generation or so, uh, a a new pharaoh arises and he starts oppressing them. Pharaoh didn't know Joseph. And they become slaves for about 400 years in in Egypt. And they're oppressed very severely. And um, on the eve... God raises up Moses, and Moses has the encounter at the burning bush, and God says, go to Pharaoh and tell him, let my people go. And, um, but I'll harden his heart. He won't let the people go, and then I'm, I'm going to judge Egypt and judge the gods of Egypt by the ten plagues. That, and the, the, the very last plague was the death of the firstborn. And um, the Israelites are told on that day to use... Uh, have a meal of, of bread, wine, bitter herbs, and the, the main course was a lamb that was roasted, and the blood of the lamb was taken and painted on the doorposts and the, the, uh, and the lintel of the house. And the death angel was going to pass through Egypt, but every house upon which the blood of the lamb was painted, the death angel will pass over, and there will be no death in that house. Um, and they're supposed to eat that meal with their sandals on their feet and their walking sticks in their hands, ready for the exodus, ready to depart, ready to be delivered. And um, they, they did this as an annual commemoration of God's delivering them from oppression in Egypt. And what would happen was the oldest, it, as the deliverance happened in households, with the blood painted on, on, on the doors, so the commemoration, the annual commemoration of the Passover also happened in the household. And the head of the household would preside over the ceremony and explain it um, 
and uh, use the symbols to explain it and use scripture, read certain scriptures and explain, you know, what happened in Egypt and how God delivered the Israelites and what it all meant. And usually the youngest in, 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 in the house, household would ask, why is this night different from every other night? And then the, the person, the head of the household, the one presiding over the ceremony, would explain, this is why. Because this is what God did. With a mightier hand and an outstretched arm, He delivered us when we were slaves in Egypt. And He set us free and He took us uh, to the promised land. And um, yet Jesus is presiding over the Passover ceremony in which He institutes the, Lord's, the so-called Lord's Supper. But what he said must have been very strange to his Jewish audience, to his Jewish disciples. Very, very strange indeed, in many ways. Now, we know from Luke's Gospel, if you go and look, I'm not going to read it, but if you go and look in Luke 9, verse 31, um, that Jesus understood himself as leading an exodus. Because on the mount, so-called Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus gets glorified and he's all shining in glory. And Moses and Elijah, the very Moses who led the exodus, appears to him. And they talk it says in the English Bible, they talk about his departure, which he is about to accomplish in, in Jerusalem. Or some translations say his death, which he is about to accomplish. And you can translate it that way. But the Greek, literal Greek word is the word exodus. Because he's literally saying, they talk about his exodus, which he's about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Jesus went to Jerusalem to accomplish a new exodus, to lead a new exodus. In fact, to lead the ultimate exodus. And he was, and, and, and therefore it's no surprise that he's using the Passover that commemorates the original exodus as the opportunity to explain what he's going to do during the new exodus, the ultimate exodus, where the, where the original exodus was an exodus that delivered the people of God from political, economic, and physical oppression. The ultimate new exodus is the exodus that delivers us from sin and evil itself. And Jesus, the prophet like Moses, is the one leading this new exodus. So he's about to lead a new exodus. And this exodus, he says, relates not primarily to the past, the original exodus. He says, I'm not going to eat of a drink of this cup again until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. So it points to a future fulfillment as well. But here's the big thing. Here's the main thing. As part of the explanation of the meal, the, the, the person presiding over the, the Passover would explain and take the bread and break it and say, this is the bread of their affliction, or even the bread of our affliction as we identify with them. And here comes Jesus, and he does something radically different. He takes the bread and he breaks it, and he says, basically, this is the bread of my affliction. This is the bread of my affliction. This is my body broken for you. And we see Jesus saying basically that I am Israel reduced to one. I suffer for the people. The people don't suffer. I suffer for the people. I suffer on behalf of the people. I suffer as the head of the people. This is the bread of my affliction. And I suffer as the Passover lamb whose blood will be shed and in a sense painted on the doorposts. 
so that the people can go free, so that the people can be protected and go free. So, so there's this, this explanation of this historic pattern of the Exodus that is in the background, the Exodus that is mentioned there in the beginning. Um, and then there's also the, the explanation of, of prophetic prediction. Jesus and the Bible uh, give astonishingly accurate predictions of how he would die. Even in this text, he says, this bread, which he breaks, is my body broken for you. In other words, my body will be broken. He says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. So my blood will be shed. And then he talks about the fact that I've greatly desired, I've greatly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. So he says, I'm gonna, it's not going to just be my body broken, my blood put out, but I'm going to suffer. Why does he say, I've greatly desired? Because he knew that many people, even many people who were following him, you know, listening to his teachings and all that kind of stuff, would look at the cross and see it as the greatest tragedy in history and say, well, everything has failed, everything has fall, fallen to the ground. If, if, if this is God's will, I don't believe anymore. And, and the irony is, so often we do that. We look at the greatest things that God is doing in our lives and the lives of the people around us and say, well, that's a tragedy. How can God bring any good out of it? Right? And yet God brings the greatest good in the history out of that event that many could look at. But, but that's why. That's one of the reasons why Jesus says, I so greatly desire to eat this Passover with you. So that I can explain beforehand to you what's going to happen so that you can understand it's not just a tragedy. It's the plan of God. It's your salvation. Um, I'm not going to. If you can just go quickly to the last slide, uh, Peter, the very last slide. Here we go. Luke 18, verse 31 to 34. Um, Jesus says the, the following, and, and just look how specific he is. Jesus took his. This is on the way to Jerusalem. He took his. Uh, he took the twelve aside and told them, "We are going to up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled." who will be handed over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. And on the third day he will rise again. And he mentions many specific things, not vague things, specific things that will happen to him. He says all of these things are going to happen in fulfillment of Scripture, what the prophets have spoken about me. Um, I'm going to be handed over to the Gentiles, to the non-Jews, which, which is important because at, by that time the Jews had already lost the right to give the death penalty. Okay, um, They will mock him, insult him, spit on him, flog him, and then kill him. And, and just look how he, these aren't just vague predictions that could possibly you know, come true. You know. these, these are very specific things. They're going to spit on him. They're going to flog him with a whip, with a cat of nine tails. Um, and then they're going to kill him, and then on the third day he's going to rise. And it says, the disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden to them, and they did not know what he was talking about. Once again, I mean, if the disciples were going to invent something afterwards, they're not going to make themselves look like in ignorant, you know, slow to understand dimwits, you know. They don't get what Jesus is saying to them. So, so once again, this rings true. You know, it's credible, historically credible, and we can believe it. 
Um, and just look at how, how accurate those are. If you look even in, in what, what the prophets have written. Look, look at just one example out of dozens and dozens. Look at Psalm 22, where, where David, a thousand years before Christ, writes, they have pierced my hands and my feet. Not just they've killed me, but they've pierced my hands and my feet. And that's a few hundred years before the Romans perfected the execution method of crucifixion. That was written by King David. That's very specific. And the Bible is the only book that has that kind of fulfilled prophecies and predictions. There's no other book that I know of. I mean, I've, I've read Nostradamus' predictions. They're very vague and, and flimsy. And, and, you know, dozens of people have seen dozens of fulfillments throughout history just because they're so vague. These are specific, very specific predictions that are fulfilled to the letter. There's nothing else like it. And Jesus uses this explanation of these prophetic predictions. But, but there's something more important. Because Jesus doesn't only explain to us in this passage how he will die. More importantly, explains to us why he will die. It's, it's mentioned actually twice in this uh, passage. He says, when he takes the bread and breaks it, he says, this is my body given for you. The, the NIV translates it, given for you. Um, and, and, and then he says, he takes the cup and he says, my blood poured out for you. And, and the, the English uses the, the preposition for because we don't really have a better preposition with which to, to translate the, the, the Greek hooper. But hooper, uh, like from which we get hyper, uh, in this case means, means instead of or on behalf of. In other words, what he's saying is, this is my body broken instead of yours. This is my blood shed on behalf of you. That's what it's saying. In other words, the reason why his body is broken and his blood is shed is for our sake and in our place in other words he's basically saying your body deserved to be broken like this but mine will in, instead this should have been the the bread of your affliction but it ends up being the bread of my affliction your blood should be shed like this but instead mine will now let me explain that because the reality is why should why should our bodies be broken and our blood blood be shed the, the, the reality is we're guilty before god we're all sinners and this is not always easy for us as modern people to accept, but it's true. We are more guilty than we realize. Um, you know, I always say it's, it's not good enough, you know, to keep some of the laws some of the time. And we feel very good about ourselves if we keep most of the laws most of the time. But God requires us to keep all of the laws all of the time. And the reality is none of us have done that. Okay? Is there anyone here who's never lied? Put up your hand. You'd probably be lying if you said you'd never lied, right? <laughs> and, and, and it's not only good enough to keep all of the laws all of the time externally. We must keep it internally. Remember what Jesus said? Um, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I say to you, if you even looked at someone to lust after them, you've committed adultery in your heart. Is there anyone who has not done that? All of us stand guilty before the Lord. And in what Jesus is saying, in other words, is that he took the punishment that our sins deserved. He took the punishment that our sins deserved.
this prophetic prediction tells us how he would die, but also why he would die. It's for us, on our behalf, in our stead. But also there's the explanation, not only of a a historic pattern and and a prophetic prediction, but also of a contrast community. Um, Tom Keller says this very well. uh, He says, Jesus' death would indeed create, or the cross creates a new community that would stand in stark contrast to to society at large. It's three things. An intimate family, a radical society, and a reverse meritocracy. I'll explain that. Don't stress. I'll explain that. I know it's a big word. Let me, let me start with an intimate family. Remember where the Passover was annually celebrated? In the home with a family. And here, Jesus has a bunch of disciples. And they're not with their biological families who are somewhere in Israel on that very moment also celebrating the Passover. But Jesus has, as it were, extracted them out of their biological families and brought them together with him in a house to celebrate the Passover. Can you see what he's saying? Can you see what he's implying with that? He's implying that he creates a new intimate family, that the cross creates a new intimate family, that his disciples are a new intimate family. And if you think about it, family bonds are very strong. Even if your family is dysfunctional. Just the mere fact that you've had so many experiences together. There's something special about family. And, and, and it's as though, you know, even if you haven't seen your family all year, you know, when you go back to visit them, you just, it's like that. And it's like you've been, you know, catering for, for months, you know. And, and, and there is something special with, with family. And it's just because you've shared so many Experiences and, and how we know it's the experiences more than just the, the blood bonds. If you, if you go and look at families who have children that are adopted, they say, share that same bond. So it's, it's not the, the, the DNA or, or the genetic bond. You know, we always say blood is thicker than water. It's not the genetic bond, it's the shared experience of growing up together, of living together, of getting to know one another that intimately. Here's what Jesus is saying He's saying, Two people from radically different ethnic backgrounds, socioeconomic backgrounds, worldviews, you know, positions in life, temperaments. If you take them and they both experience the cross, that makes them closer than a natural family that has shared years of experience together. That is how powerful the experience of the cross is. That's what Jesus is telling us about this. That's, a, that's quite an audacious claim. That's quite an audacious claim. But that is what the church can be and should be and sometimes is. An intimate family. But not only an intimate family, but also a radical society. It talks about a kingdom, conferring a kingdom, which, which implies a, a, a new society. And, and, and the society is quite radical, um, because he says, let me just read that, if I can find it. He says, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them. And, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But, it, but you are not to be like that. 
Instead, the greatest among you should be the youngest, and the one who rules as the one who serves. And Jesus mentions something or refers to something that was commonplace in that day. He says, often in this world, authority is abused. The kings of this world lord it over people and actually take advantage of them. And then, to make it worse, they call themselves benefactors. Now, what does that mean? Well, we as South Africans know, because in the last couple of years, we've been experiencing this whole thing of the help of patrons and benefactors. Okay? It's, it's, it's like the Godfather. You know, the Godfather will do favors for you, but then you owe him. And he can call in that favor at any time. He'll take care of you, but you owe him. And our own, our very own Godfather, it seems to be coming out now in, in the state capture inquiries, you know, our very own Godfather, Jay-Z, <laughs> has been doing many favors <laughs> for many people, <laughs> it seems, <laughs> if the, the evidence in the public square is to be believed. And... Um, the idea behind it, and, and in, in those days it was commonplace and quite accepted that rich, powerful people would take care of and do favors for poor, marginalized people, but then they owed them. They, they, as it were, owed their lives to them, and, and they were expected to, wherever they are, act in the best interest of their benefactors. Procure honor for them. Tell everyone how great they are and how good they are. Procure new opportunities for them, etc., etc., etc. Exactly like... Um, many politically connected people in South Africa have been doing for the last decade. And what does Jesus say? But it shall not be so amongst you. It's wrong. It's wrong. And we, we look at, at uh, people like uh, ex-president Jacob Zuma and we, we're rightly disgusted by what he's done and by what many corrupt officials seemingly in the government has done. We, we, we're right to be disgusted at that not realizing that we often do the very same thing, just on a slightly milder scale. Because what this whole thing about being a benefactor is about is, I'm going to associate with people who can ultimately benefit me. There's, eventually there'll be a payoff. I'll call in the favor and they'll help me back. They'll benefit me in some way. So I'm going to help them, but it's because I expect something in return. And don't we, if we're very honest with ourselves, choose who we can hang out because... They're pretty, or they're smart, or they're powerful, or they're connected. I want to hang out with those people that are going to make me look good. I'm going to hang out with those people because it's beneficial for me to have them in my life. But there are certain people that it doesn't seem that it'll be beneficial for me to have them in life. In fact, it'll be a bit of a nuisance. They'll be a bit of a drain on me. I don't want to hang out with those people. I'm only going to hang out with the people that make me feel good and that benefit me, that have a payoff. What makes us different? What makes us different from the benefactors in Jesus' day? But Jesus says, it must not be so amongst you. And Jesus says that the cross actually creates a community where people hang out not only with those who will eventually benefit them, but with anyone. Because here's the thing. Did it benefit Jesus to hang out with us? Did it benefit Jesus to associate with us? Is there anything, you know, that, that we can give him that he doesn't already have? And yet he associated in the most intimate, deep way with us. And he expects us to do the same and follow his example. 
So the cross creates an intimate family, a radical society, and finally a reverse meritocracy. And that's Tim Keller's big word. Um, right at the end, he says to Peter, Simon, Simon, Satan's asked for you to sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you. And Simon, I want you to strengthen my brethren. I've chosen you to strengthen my brethren because of your impeccable record, because of your great courage and fortitude under persecution and under pressure. Is that what Jesus says to him? <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> I mean, in the world, you choose the people that are the best, that are the most successful, right? Jesus says in this new contrast community, he chooses the people not that are the best, the most successful, but that, that are the most repentant. All the leaders in this new contrast community are leaders like Peter. And they're not perfect. They've messed up. I mean, he says to Peter, Peter you're going to be a coward. <laughs> you know, you're going to let me down. You're going to betray. You're going to deny that you even know me. But when you have turned back, strengthen your brethren. When you have turned back, when you have repented. Martin Luther says in the very first of his 95 theses that he hammered onto the door of the church in Wittenberg, he says, the whole of the Christian life is repentance. And I think he's right. Christianity, how, how, you know, what the quality of, of, of your faith, the quality of your walk with the Lord depends not on with how perfect you are, on how good you are and, and, and how you know, careful you are to avoid sin. And to avoid mistakes. But on how well you repent after you've made mistakes. In other words, we're a community, a radical contrast community of failures, of reformed failures, of repentant failures who are chosen by the Lord to strengthen one another. Now you, you might protest, you might look at this contrast community and say, well, hang on, you know, the church hasn't always been like this. The, the, you know, the church is not like this. Yes, granted, the church isn't always like this. There are many places where the church has failed to be like this. But don't reject a community and a faith based on the misrepresentation of it. The church ought to be like this. And the church can be like this. And sometimes the church is like this. If you go and look under apartheid South Africa, yes, there were some churches that justified apartheid, that even used the Bible and theology to justify apartheid and to say that apartheid is right. There were churches that did that. But the, one of the few places, possibly one of the only places where you did get on a regular basis white and black and every shade of melanin in between coming together on a regular basis were in certain churches in South Africa. Certain, certain Anglican churches, certain Pentecostal charismatic churches, etc. Certain you know, Wesleyan churches or whatever. That's where you saw what the church could be. So, um, and, and, and here's the thing. Maybe I can just sort of end this point with, with this, uh, this heading with, with this, um, by making this point. This contrast community was so compelling that when the Greco-Roman citizens who despised it initially looked at it, it was so compelling, it was so beautiful, it was so powerful that they in their droves joined this community. So much so 
that Christianity went from a persecuted minority within a couple of generations, two or three generations, to the greatest, the biggest, the most powerful religion in the Greco-Roman Empire. That's a historical fact. That's a historical fact. They saw this community that was so different from the Roman Empire, from their society, and they said, I want to be part of that. And that's what we can be. We can also make people say, wow, I want to be part of that. I want to be part of that. And then finally, uh, the evidence of a changed life. And that, that changed life is the life of Peter. Many lives have been changed, just like Peter's. And almost, well, all of us actually are a lot like Peter, in the sense that we think we're less sinful than we are, and we think we're more committed than we are. We all think that. We all think like Peter. I mean, uh, he, he, says, he says to Jesus, when Jesus says to him, you know, you're going you're to betray me, you're going to deny me, you're going to forsake me. He says, no, Lord, I'm ready to go with, to you, with you to prison and to death. <laughs> and everyone else, I'm sure, said the same thing, all the other disciples. And Jesus says, no, actually, Peter, <laughs> you're more sinful than you think you are and you're less committed to me than you think you are. And how does Jesus solve that problem, that we are more sinful than we think we are and less committed to him than we think we are? How does he solve that problem? Remember, in the Passover, you'd have all these symbols. You'd have the bread, you'd have the cups with the wine in, you'd have the bitter herbs. What was the main course of the Passover? The lamb. Isn't it interesting that Luke never mentions the lamb? I read the passage to you. The lamb's not mentioned. Some people say, oh, no, Luke just left that out. No, but Mark also leaves it out. Matthew also leaves it out. All of them leave it out. Why would they leave out something so important? There was no lamb on the table because the lamb was sitting at the table. And he was saying, as he broke the bread, this is my body broken for you. Eat it. This is my blood shed for you. Drink it. Here's the thing I want you to see. Even though the cross creates a contrast community, there's a corporate effect. It must be individually appropriated and received. You cannot outsource your eating. You can outsource many things. You can outsource your washing for someone else to do. You can outsource your food for someone else to make for you. But you cannot outsource your eating. You've got to eat your own food. You've got to drink your own water. And it's the same with Jesus. And Jesus is saying that when you eat this bread and when you drink this cup, you are receiving me. You see, Peter was a lot less committed to Jesus than he thought he was. But Jesus was a lot more committed to Peter than Peter realized he was. You see, Peter denied Jesus when a little slave girl came and put a bit of pressure on him. But Jesus hung on the cross and he never denied Peter who betrayed him and who disowned him. And Jesus is saying, Peter, the solution, the solution to your cowardice, your lack of commitment to me, is that you need to get more of me inside of you. Peter was less committed to Jesus than he thought. 
but Jesus was more committed to Peter than he realized. And Peter needed to receive Jesus to be inside of him so that the hero in Jesus could overcome the coward in Peter. And so that by receiving Jesus into him, Peter could become more like Jesus. And he did. He did. After Jesus rose from the dead and after he received the Spirit, Peter boldly stood up on the day of Pentecost and he preached to thousands. He suffered a lot of persecution, but it never stopped him from from confessing Jesus. He was also flogged, also beaten, also, also threatened by the Sanhedrin. He didn't deny Jesus. Eventually he died and he said, I'm not worthy to, be, to die in the same way as my Lord. Please crucify me upside down. And he was crucified upside down. Died a horrible death. But he never again denied Jesus because he'd received Jesus inside of him. Jesus, Jesus the hero, the brave, had dealt with Peter, the coward. The word Simon, the name Simon means reed, and the name Peter, Petros, means rock. And Peter, by receiving Jesus, turned him from a reed that is blown by the wind into a rock that is solid and stable. And he can do the same for you and for me. He can do the same for us. I just want you to close your eyes. I just want us to remember that it's because Jesus' body was broken that we can be part of his body, even though we're broken. And I want you to realize how powerful the cross is. It doesn't only create us corporately as a contrast community to the world where God can put his glory and his his difference on display to the world, but it changes us as individuals and it makes us more like Jesus. Not, and the confidence that we have, on the one hand it humbles us terribly, (laughs) Terribly, because we realize, like Peter, we're worse than we think. We know better than anyone else. But on the other hand, it encourages us and gives us confidence. But not confidence in ourselves, but confidence in Christ in us. The hope of glory. Confidence in the one that we receive, that we eat, that we make part of us. And I want to invite you, and I believe that Jesus wants to invite us, to this morning as it were eat of him and drink of him I just want you to close your eyes and maybe you you haven't ever done this you've never actually received Jesus in that way you've you've known about him you've um, you've thought he lived an inspired life you've you've been religious and gone to church but you've never actually allowed Jesus into the very center of your being. And if that's you, I want to encourage you, don't hold back. If He loved you so much that He was willing to die for you, will He not receive you when you come to Him? Will He not love you when you come to Him? And so if that's you this morning, if you've never actually committed your life to the Lord and be born again, and you'd like to do that, you feel the, the Holy Spirit tugging at your heart and saying, you need to do that, you need to respond. I just want you to put up your hand and say, that's me, Annie. I want you to pray with me. 
I want to actually commit my life to the Lord. I actually want to receive Jesus. Is there anyone like that this morning? That you just, just quickly slip up your hand and I'd love to pray with you after the service. So I presume we're all, all Christians. So for us as Christians, I want to say, do you realize how much you need Jesus inside of you? Or are you still like Peter that says, Oh Lord, I'm willing to go with you to prison and to death. Lord, I'm as committed to you as you are to me. Has that bubble been burst yet? Mine has. I hope yours has too. I hope you realize that Jesus loves you more than you love him. And I hope you realize that the only hope you have of being like Jesus is to having him inside of you. So I just want you to, as your eyes are closed, just pray and say, Lord Jesus, thank you that you're inside of me. Thank you that you live inside of me. And thank you that you're making me more like you. Thank you that you love me more than I love you please help me to love you more please help me to be more courageous please help me to be more humble please help me to be more bold for you Lord Jesus you you inspire us your cross inspires us Lord we understand now why the cross is the most the the most well-known symbol in all the world more well-known than Coca-Cola is because it means more it's because of what you have done on the cross and we receive that this morning let the cross work in our hearts and upon our lives to make us more like you we surrender ourselves to you have your way in us through your Holy Spirit have your way in us, Lord, and, and, and do please make us that contrast community that puts your nature that is so different from the nature of this world on display for all to see. Lord, I pray your blessing over every person, over every family represented here, Lord. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Shofar Johannesburg. May the grace you received produce God's greatest glory and your greatest good. For more information and sermons, please visit our website at www.shofar.joburg.com.